So how, how, how are things going? Say again. Still feels like a concrete. Concrete. Perhaps a more day. Yeah. So um, when when the body's tight. You know, sometimes that's an accumulation of a lot of what's preceded it. And so if there's been a lot of, of mental activity and not a lot of attention to the body, then sometimes what comes when one sits is just a lot of just tightness. So uh, what our task is, is to learn how to respond to it skillfully without actually asking it for to be otherwise. So the body has its own time and its own rhythm. Certainly the way we attend to it is going to either help or hinder the process. But it doesn't help if we pay attention with a kind of um, uh, sense that I'll pay attention as long as you change. <laughs> so, you know, the part of what, what happens is, is that we, we have some kind of a reflection about the way that we have been living. And it, it can be it can be sobering, you know, when we see how much tension and tightness has not been attended to, how much stiffness in the body is there. Yeah. So it takes a lot of um, gentleness and patience and also faith. You know, when it, if everything feels so tight, there has to be some kind of confidence that the practice actually is worthwhile. When we are working with the parts of the body like that, um, <coughs> in this last meditation, metta was the anchor. Okay, the breath can continue to be the anchor, just letting the breath, you know, massaging the breath through the organs of the body. You can you, you can do that. Um, the classical way of doing the super practice is is just to have the clear seeing of each organ or each part. So it's neither breath nor metta. It's just uh, the inside of what it is that's seen. Yeah.
being going through that process. Take, for example, those plants or, or even the birds out there. They are not going, they are just going through their daily rhythm. So would they not be guaranteed any just liberation? Well, they are not going through any meditation. <laughs> but when I say torture, it's not in a, uh, like a beating kind of torture. Uh, it's like there is something that uh, that's happening also. So, uh, so the the middle path is 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 it's close to what you said, but there's a little bit of a difference. Rather than renunciation, it's self mortification. Okay, so the difference between self-mortification on one hand and self-indulgence or de- following desire on the other hand. Okay, so in the in the Theravada tradition, which is the tradition that I come from, renunciation is a very useful, um, skillful means as a way of moving away from what's not needed. So it's it isn't easy to give up, uh, you know, a, a plate of silver unless somebody gives you a plate of gold, okay? And it's not going to be easy to give up a plate of gold unless somebody gives you a plate that's made out of diamond, okay? So the Buddha's path and the Buddha's teaching is, is, is helping us to refocus our attention onto things that actually bring us a kind of lasting happiness and lasting freedom. So the plants, they aren't being tortured, and the birds are not being tortured, and in some ways we can learn from them in the sense of what it is just to relax and be who we are without contorting ourselves into some kind of a pretzel, okay? So there's, we can learn, you know, just they're natural. You know, the flowers, they're, they're just, they're radiant. They're relaxing into who they are. They're, they're not putting on a performance, nor are they covering themselves up. They're just exactly who they are. And the same with the birds, you know, they're in a rhythm and they flow. And so there's a there's a lot of learning that we can find from nature. But the classical teaching is is, is that the plants and the birds and the flowers don't have a reflective mind. And so they could go through life, but they don't have choice in terms of, you know, what happens to them. So for example with animals, you know, it's it's not very many animals that have the capacity for family planning, okay? They don't have that. So when instincts are present, they follow them. They don't have the choice to decide how do they follow those desires. They come and they just follow them. And then the result of following those desires is they have children, and the, the children of the animals then, you know, that'll follow a cycle. So there's a kind of natural order in that but the choice, there isn't choice. And so one of the things that delineates the human realm is, is that we have choice. So what's happening in, the, in our reflections is recognizing that even though there's a lot of joy that can come from having family and having children, if there isn't a reflective wisdom that sees something that is not bound to aging, sickness, and death, then all kinds of suffering can also come from having families and having children. There's a, there's a story in the Buddha's time where Saka was a, was a wonderful and very devoted lay follower. And she had uh, a tremendous amount of faith in the Buddhist community. And uh, she uh, had a lot of faith in the teachings. She's a very devoted practitioner. And she had a lot of... of uh, 
children, and she had a huge number of grandchildren. And one of the grandchildren died. Yeah. And so she came to the Buddha, you know, just um, grief-stricken, having gone to the funeral ceremony of the of the dead grandchild. And and the Buddha was encouraging her to reflect, you know, um, because you know her natural feeling was to love all her grandchildren in a way where her love of her grandchildren also meant that any time any of them was hurt or distressed or in pain or sick or this one had just died, she was devastated. And so what he was trying to point out is, is, is that when there's that kind of investment so that one's devastated, then that will naturally mean that the more grandchildren you have, the more opportunities you're going to be for being devastated. So he was trying to point her to a way of practicing that was more peaceful, more equanimous, in a way where she didn't discount her affection, but she wasn't invested in her attachment. Okay? So, you know, there's different styles of practice and you know it's not for me to tell anybody how they're supposed to practice you know there's there's all kinds of practice that from a Theravadan perspective would look very much on one end of the spectrum <laughs> like my friend my friend who's a Theravadan you know his girlfriend is from the Tibetan tradition and they like to drink you know so they drink so she was telling them that she's got a new man in her life and he doesn't drink. So they said, let's toast to that. <laughs> I drink to that. <laughs> so it's not for me to impose my value system on anybody else, you know, and for what kind of style. So there's a huge spectrum of, like, what, what, what is the middle path, you know. You know, we joke in, in, in the West that we practice the upper middle path, you know. <laughs> because, like, for example, if you go to Asia, you know, we don't have things like this to sit on. You're just sitting on concrete. You know, all's, all's the, all you have is, is, is this, you know, a tiny thin cloth or a little kind of reed thing. And that's not only what you sit on, but that's what you sleep on. They don't have things like beds and mattresses, you know. So this is a kind of Western invention where large sections of the population, they don't do it like that, yeah. And, you know, they don't have, in in Thailand, they have open salas, and the mosquitoes would come. They didn't have screens on the windows, And they didn't have air conditioners, you know. So in the hot season, it was hot. And in the cold season, it was cold. And in the mosquito season, which was all the time, you know. So it was just like practicing with what was. So where's the torture? You know, where is the torture? That's why I try to clarify, and it's not torture in the commonly used sense by the governments. We feel some kind of distress, some kind of pain. Like I have to, in my case, I'll give you my example. I left my daily life, which involved work, sleep, and eat, to come to here. It also has uh, sleep and eat, but no work. But in turn, there's this now rigid feeling in my body, which is definitely 
kind of discomfort and compared to my daily rhythm of when I wake up, when I sleep, the whole pattern has shifted. So in a way there's some kind of uh, uh, discomfort there also. So this is what I meant by thoughts, but not like someone... So then it takes a certain amount of faith or confidence to understand that if we're having a pain now, that there's actually some way of working with it in a way where there's a kind of greater peace that can come later. Yeah. So most of the time in our life, it's, it's, it, we can have patterns and rhythms and it's natural that we have a certain amount of discomfort in our life as well as a certain amount of pleasure. All of those things are true. But in our ordinary life, our life is often so full of activity and we have the kind of opportunity to move that we don't notice the unpleasant qualities that are in the body that are inherently there because our attention is moving too quickly. Yeah, or on too many different things. And so, you know, you come into a situation like this where we're sitting for many hours a day. You notice, yeah. And because we're sitting and, you know, we're not getting up and dancing or we're not going outside and stretching at every moment that it feels uncomfortable, then what's being asked is to come into a new relationship with discomfort rather than following the old pattern, which is just to focus on something else or distract oneself or shift the body. Yeah. So the invitation is to come into a different relationship with the experience of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And the faith, initially, until one's experienced it, is that through doing that, then something will open up that allows a deeper kind of freedom than the kind of freedom that's dependent on distracting oneself and allowing a moving one's body or um, somehow um, getting rid of those unpleasant feelings. Yeah. So the tightness, you feel like, well, why, you know, why come and feel so miserable, you know, so tense and so tight and so all the rest of that. But part of that tension and tightness is the result of the way one has been living. And so if you can't, if you don't see that, if you don't see that that's partly a cause and effect relationship between the lack of attention to body and breath, yeah, then it's also hard to see that by bringing attention to body and breath that it has the possibility of shifting. So it takes a certain amount of, of faith, you know, that there's actually a reason why we do this. Yeah. But if we look on another perspective, which is, you know, what I was trying to talk about a little bit last night, and also with the whole, you know, it, 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 it's true that the plants have a loveliness to them, and the flowers have a loveliness to them, and the birds have a loveliness to them. All of life has its own natural order. But when we look very carefully, you know, at the way animals live and the way birds live, you know, there's, there's a constant threat of danger, you know. There's constantly the threat of, of being killed and, the, and needing to find food and trying to protect one's young and the kind of risks that happen when the, when the babies are vulnerable. You know, and sometimes the parents can protect the children and sometimes they can. I was, I was visiting a friend and there was a nest. What kind of nest was it? It might have been... I don't know what kind of nest. Maybe it was a robin's nest. I don't know what kind of a nest it was. Anyway, there were some young chicks in that nest. And some big birds came to attack the nest. Okay? And because those big birds were kind of like the bad birds on the block, 
Then all the birds in the neighborhood rallied. All the different species rallied. There were like seven different species rallied with the parents of the robins to try and defend the nest. But they couldn't do it. You know, they couldn't defend the nest. So the 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 crows robbed the nest and they ate the chicks, you know. And so it's like that constant threat of danger is imminent. It's everywhere. It's all the time. Until one has an experience or is able to touch something which is beyond beyond death. So we have cause and effect. We have instinct. We have our whole uh, bodies which have the capacity to reproduce. We have children and the loveliness that comes with children. But whenever there's birth, inevitably there is aging and there's sickness and there's death. It comes together as one package. And when we really get that, that there's absolutely nothing that we have in our worlds that has absolute medicine against that, that every single one of us is subject to that, you know, that no matter how powerful, intelligent, brilliant, how much love, how much, in, how much privilege, how much opportunity we have, these basic things are like the frame of our life. And that in certain situations, the kind of suffering that people experience is just horrendous. You know, and it's not because they're bad people, it's just because the circumstances are like that. So catastrophic illness or poverty or violence or being in situations that aren't well cared for. So when we see the kind of spectrum of what's possible in the human realm, you know, it's like, wow, you know, is this thing just a thing of continuing and there's no end in sight and, and there's, no, there's no way out? So it's, it's these kinds of questions that encourage practice of trying to find what is, what is, is there, is there more than just having families and children and getting old and dying? Is there, is there more to that? And so that those questions were, were, were what, what, what uh, inspired the whole kind of quest for enlightenment. And the irony is, is that the way out is in, you know. The way out of suffering is actually to touch it, to know it, to understand it, and to come to a different relationship with it. So we don't need to obliterate our desires. We just need to see them for what they are and come into a different relationship with them. Is that making sense, Shiva? Yeah? But, you know, for the first time being on retreat, you know, I've, I've sat with my body like concrete. I can't tell you for how many times and how many weeks and how many months, you know. And it's like, you know, if I've been through a big, strong emotional process where I've been upset about something and haven't been able to let it completely digest or resolve, it's almost inevitable the next time I sit, I'm like concrete, you know. So for me, concrete is like part of the practice. But I also know that when I'm actually with it, there's a, there's a, there's a releasing that happens. And then the kind of ease that I experience when I go through that is very different from being able to wake up and have your coffee and do the kinds of things you normally like to do in your daily life. It's a totally different sense of fluidity and ease. 
that we don't normally have access to. Are there any other questions or comments or things to bring up? Okay, well, what I'd like to do is have the, um, the group interview that was supposed to be this morning now. And, uh, and everybody else can do walking meditation until lunchtime, which is in an hour. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.